0: This podcast is brought to you by Antelope Audio. Considered among the leaders in professional sound quality, Antelope is responsible for the Synergy Core line of audio interfaces, giving creators access to the finest real-time analog-modeled effects. Learn more at antelopeaudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. We first interviewed Ann Mincielli back in 2012 for Tape Op issue 89, but 10 years is an eternity these days, so Jeff Stanfield caught up with Ann to chat about her early studio days, mentors, immersive audio, her work with Alicia Keys, and ever-expanding studio ventures. Enjoy! Thanks for joining me today.
1: Um, my pleasure.
0: I know we interviewed you. Uh, I don't know. Larry, you talked to Larry years ago, but. Yeah, um... 10
1: years. Actually, right now we did. It's like our 10th anniversary. So he was one of the first to write about Jungle. I want to say 2011, 2012. So it's like 10 years. But it was an amazing. Wow. Article yeah. When the actual, you know, to have it in a magazine and in tape op is
0: pretty historic. So we were honored and i do want to talk about jungle city and what's been going on since that last uh um you know time that you spoke with larry but um before we do that i mean you know you're known currently for your work with alicia and and jungle city obviously but but everyone typically has a pretty long and storied path to get to the point where even where you spoke with larry before and um what was your initial spark and interest in getting into the music business and where that spark came from and and, and how you sort of got your uh, start?
1: I um I was just I love the music since I was growing up. My sisters collected vinyl and even from a, at a very young age, I would look at the sleeve, the vinyl sleeves, right, and just kind of study things and I love the music. My whole family loved music and they love like Diana Ross, the Supremes, like Barbara Streisand. John Lennon and things like that. So fast forward to I wanted to play guitar. I was 13 years old. I went with my sister's husband. He took me to a local music store in Staten Island. I'm born and raised in New York and I wanted to play bass guitar. I saw this bass player who played with the Pointer Sisters and I don't, maybe his name was Donald Boyette at the time, but I love the musicians that played for the Pointer Sisters. I was a huge, fan of old music and equally what was happening at the time, this was the early 80s. And um, I went into this music store, I just loved, he was playing a slap bass, pluck, slap, pull style, Jaco Pastores type stuff and I wanted to play bass and I'm lefty. So I went in the store thinking I'm going to buy a lefty bass and the story was, I had to buy a righty bass and I was just like, wow, I don't want to play lefty because I was I was young. I wanted to pick colors like I want that purple guitar and that red <laughs> guitar. Or, and you just you know yeah. the deal with lefties, right? Like um, you can't you got to order the guitar and like there's no freedom in just walking in any guitar store. So I learned how to play guitar and bass righty. And I'm equally as fluent with bass as I am with guitar and have a huge, I've been collecting since I'm 13. I would save my money. I worked in a pizzeria and I would save my money and any money that I got, I would like, I used to help some guy sell music tickets. So I went to every show at a young age and that's how I, um, I like would get tickets off this guy and I would go to all these shows and then I would help people get tickets, you know, back in the day. And then, My friends were session musicians. I started to get a little older, 15, 16 years old and watch them go to studios and go to rehearsal spaces. And I started studying the credits on all my favorite albums. I was a huge collector of cassettes, CDs, some vinyl, you know, but you know, my era was like cassettes and and CDs. And I had this huge collection and I would study the credits I started to memorize all the roles, all the players in the studio, this popular studios, you'd see the names over and over and the genres. I started to learn just by, there was no YouTube back in the day. Those were your Bibles of, right? How to learn who was working on what albums. So um, my friend was a session musician at a studio named Skyline at the time. In the early, early nineties, I was 16 years old and I would go. And I, I realized that the studio was the hub at at a very young age that there was producers and writers and programmers and arrangers and even the a and the artists. And you work with the artists, you didn't work for them. So I started to intern for free. And I just worked my way up and I started working at two studios. Then I started work, which was Skyline and Track. Then I just started moving as I wanted to learn more things. I went to Axis Studios, was owned by renowned producer Francois Kavorkian who was a renowned DJ, and he had all this MIDI gear and synth keyboard collection. And he was using Logic Audio and Pro Tools when it was sound tools, whether when it was a two channel. So that's how I got in the um industry. And I wanted to learn everything. I interned at a label. I, you know, worked every position at the studio. I just didn't start like the studio had this program. You work three months as reception. Then you moved three months to assistant day tech. Then you move, you know, three months, you're a general assistant, you're an intern, you're a general assistant. Assistant day techs helped, you know, get the rooms prepped at the time, lock tape, the line tape machines. You would help the techs go around in all the rooms. So I think back then, you know, you had to be an engineer who assisted. And then I got my, I really cut my teeth and took it to the next level. Hence, well, I don't want to get too far ahead, but that's kind of how I, um, how I started out my love for music. My love for playing and my love for just learning what the industry was and stumbling upon studios allowed me to, you know, have a shortcut.
0: Yeah. I mean, especially at such a young age, I feel like kids, regardless of the era, now I feel like kids are super advanced, but yeah. like, you know, it's just, it just becomes. Sort of second nature, I guess. If you're just exposed to it yeah. at an early age, you know, it just becomes what you know. Um, but it sounded like, sounds like you were incredibly interested yeah. in really digging into all aspects of it. I mean, you know, because MIDI is way, yeah. way different than learning how to align tape exactly. machines and all that stuff. And I too, wanted to
1: have know. a depth to my knowledge and I wanted to have a depth to my engineering. And still till this day, you know, I want to learn, there's many d- different techniques, right? To do the same thing. You know, there's a thousand different ways to record a vocal. And I was the person that loved to, I stood as an assistant engineer a long time, because I learned from so many people, like, from, you know, Serb in Guinea, to Tony Maserati, to Manny Maraquin, to Alan Mulder, you name it, Susan Rogers, Mariah Carey, Dana John Chappelle, I assisted those folks for years and years at Quad. And at the same time at Quad, they had three new desks so it was very very rewarding you know and um there wasn't many females at the time you know but there was a few at skyline and the industry was older not only was were, were were there not many females no matter across what area of the industry you worked in industry was older the artists were older right like the the folks yeah. at the labels were older the engineers were older so the gap between me and some of the folks that were working like i'm 16 years old and an assistant engineer is in their mid-30s right like so right so it's interesting the times have changed you know
0: yeah i mean you know now it seems like that whole you know i guess you could call it a system for bringing people up and learning the trade um from being an intern in a you know like the old tape op you know like all that stuff is that's really going away. I mean, I feel like, you know, and, and just sort of the simple things like etiquette exactly. and, and just <clears throat> real privilege to be able to actually have gone through that system. And some of the people that you mentioned, I was curious, like, you know, the Manny's and the Tony Maseratis and the Susan Rogers. What were some of the things from a production standpoint that you have carried with you to, till today?
1: Um, one thing from Tony Maserati was frequency spectrum you know, and and listening to your mix when you got your tapes or your Pro Tools, understanding what's in the track frequency spectrum wise and how to fill in the gaps. And and like there might be certain elements that are missing, you know, your lows, your low mids, your highs and, and how to mix a hip hop mix. Right. Like how to get image, depth and space, but have the mix be tall at the same time you know your snare is right below your vocal and then you have your kick drum and your bass is somewhat cutting between you know your kick drum and your snare right like he had this and he he was the first he had this new york sound and he would he did a lot of splitting his frequencies with his kick drums and his snares so he would route his kick drum two or three times and eq it separately you know he'd do a lot of parallel EQing and compressing in in a in a in his own way not not the traditional way that people are doing parallel everyone has a new like a, a different way of trying to use parallel compression but I think Maserati the way he mixed is the way I record I I record my kick drum I have four different mics and I put a sub kick on mine which is a Yamaha sub kick and I filter out all of the, um, you know, I filter out maybe 100 and below. And he also taught me about compressors, not only being used to compress things, but the tone of them. He taught me a lot about the different, you know, variations of compressors, whether he was using an LA-3A on a vocal or a DBX-160 on a kick drum, you know, but he taught me a lot about frequency spectrum and image and depth and space and being really he helped me really develop my ears based off of how precise we wrote his recall notes up and 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 to like really have to recall a mix back in the day you know using the instrumental playing from the dat and abing and then the the tv track which had the background vocals but yeah it's that frequency spectrum and making sure you know sometimes even in a in a case where he was cool with the producer he might tell them like add add a thing or two or change your kick drum sound, you know, and he he was a genius with Manny. I think he is amazing. Tony and Manny are two of the mixers that um, I know for many years and I still work with Manny still till this day. Alicia uses him. And it was nice to assist him in the early nineties on projects like The Boy Is Mine. With, you know, Rodney Jerkins and he worked with Babyface a lot. He would be in New York a lot. He would track and mix. So it's nice to see him evolve. I learned from him that you can have your own style, but it's the artist's vision. Some mixers want to do what they do. They have a style and they feel that's why you hire them. With Manny, he has a style and a vibe, but it's also about listening to that rough Because he's been that way since day one, and he understands that it's a service industry, and this is the artist's art, above all, not just ours. And it's very tricky with a lot of mixers through the years, you know, like some people want to take a mix, and they don't want to listen to the rough. And that's fine, but I think there's also a way to finesse it where you can do your own thing and make that rough better, you know, and make that rough a hybrid of what you do and what the artist has been living with. With, I think that Manny has taught me that from day one. And to rough, get great roughs. So Maserati and Manny, as I track Alicia, like Manny's been such a part of our process, and Maserati has been in and out for many years um, on mixing our, our our songs. You know, when it comes to completing an album, but. The other thing is mixing incrementally, right? Like every night, making sure your mix is getting better. Like artists like Alicia, she's like Prince. She's constantly adding things, whether it's the arrangement of the song, whether it's, you know, re singing vocals, whether it's the production and and the actual creation of the song. She splits it all, you know, and those arrangements, they have twists and turns. They kind of affect your mix because you might have had a great mix and then she's Eliminating elements or changing a bass part. She's very traditional. She's a hybrid producer. She produces all her own music. So um, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And I've learned that from them. Always make sure you're rough you're getting you know, you're not just there to press record, you're there to also, you know, get a great mix, get the song feeling great and hand off, you know, the cake so they can put the finishing touches on it, you know.
0: You just talked about something that made me have have a thought of just about workflow and and process. Traditionally, a band would go in and they would set up the drums yeah. and everybody would track, li- you know, for the most part, track live, get you know, get basics, do overdubs, then do vocals, comp the vocals, mix. It doesn't sound like that's the process with an Alicia Keys it record. It is. It is. It so is. So it's
1: a hybrid. We start songs from scratch. She's very traditional. No song is brought in and a lot of a lot of days these beat makers come in with songs that are done already and artist picks them and that's how they make their record. We start every song from scratch. There's no rules at the end of the day. I have to follow what direction. Some days she's starting a song where like I'm writing this song, I'm singing piano and vocal at the same time. Boom. I have to record that scenario. The next day she's coming in and she's like, Steve Wolf is on drums. Carlos Alomar's on guitar. I'm on piano. We're recording a jazz trio. So this my setup and my setup between live drums over program drums, because then I go in and even our click drums, sometimes they're mapped out to the live drummer. You know, sometimes she'll not have the drummer play on click on purpose. And then we go back and create the click map in Pro Tools based off of every bar of where the drummer hit. So the rest of the musicians always have the swing and they could play on click if they want to. So her technique is pretty far and wide. She'll come in with a songwriter like Emily Sandy and she just wants to focus on writing the lyric and melody. The next day she's coming in with, you know, Dave Smith and re- learning her Moogs and all of his profit line. And she's playing all of his keyboards and her Moog and something like a Moog or a keyboard part sparks a song like the song, No One. It was a simple drum loop, but we used this $100 Jupiter plugin that came out from Atoria at the time. And we created this part that plays in these, what we call uh, posts, like these breaks before each verse that people die to hear more of, but it only comes in twice, you know, and it gets people like, wow, you should have like, you know, people wait for that song. It's this little, um, you know, horn sound out of the Jupiter that we played with the attacks and releases on the actual Jupiter and the oscillators to get the decays, to make it sound more percussive. Does that make sense? So, um, there's no rules. She's a gear, gear freak like i'll come in some days and i'll have optagon and she's already in the control room or our old mellotron and i'm like well let's just pull up the new mellotron that we got but we're using literally our old mellotron and replacing the tapes that we own you know and the thing is sparking or our cs 80 it has vcas in it one day we turned it on and she's playing it and smoke is coming out of it (laughs) so there's no rules she's very traditional when you hear her records songs like if i ain't got you there wasn't a click track and anything that was programmed was programmed live she's a great drum programmer too the best thing about the way she produces is she knows how to make the song evolve and she's adding things that you don't even realize you don't hear them but you feel them and she always thinks of the audience and the listener and what's going to keep them engaged throughout the song i feel like it's been a blessing to work with her because of all the hats she wears you know and it keeps me ever evolving and ever growing as an engineer i always have to learn some we have two pro tools rigs we run side by side so we're very retro futuristic we have the biggest drum collection i have 12 vintage drum kits dating back to you know um roger's cocktail kit to our uh george way Campco dw line you know that's all the same line right dw bought all of those all that whole line and you can see the line evolve we have about 35 snare drums 100 cymbals and she's about here's my blank piece of paper I have the song written. Here's how I want to paint the sonic picture. I want this guitar to sound broken like I'm on a beach in Jamaica and it's just wrong. It's almost broken. And we have to achieve that sound. I use the SM7 a lot because she'll be in the control room singing something and the vibe of what she sings just by writing something is a keeper, you know. So there's a song called 101 uh, on the Girl on Fire record. It's one take old school, me riding faders, doing reverb, like uh, delay throws, her singing and performing. We can never outdo the mix. We can never outdo, you know, and I'll get the labels calling us like, hey, can we get acapellas? And we're like, there's none because she sang and played. She'll sing and play at the same time. I have scenarios where I have magnet mics and I have to close the lid down nowadays, you know, cause I've, we got better mics that, you know, are able to handle stuff like that, you know? So she's definitely very much into old gear. She lives, we live in the sixties and seventies.
0: That's cool. Um, So just to back up a little bit, I mean, it's a, you guys have had a, an extremely long working relationship and friendship. So, you know, what do you think it was? And first of all, how did you guys, how did that happen and then continue to this day where you guys met worked and then obviously have continued this relationship and what do you, what do you think it is about that partnership that's so special and and is able to uh, to grow really because it and develop because you know even if you make a great record together that doesn't mean that you guys would have necessarily continued to grow together because artists that are continuing to make records are obviously pushing and alicia is one of these people that seems to want to continue to progress and it's not just doing the making the same record all the time so
1: exactly and she has to balance out the artist and then all the commercial side of actually the business side of putting a record out i think that's the big key these days compared to the old days so what helped us grow and where we we met at quad studios as far back as like 97, 98. And she was signed at uh, Sony ATV. She got a pub deal at the age of 13. And the first time she started working at Quad was 96. I want to say I started to meet her 97, 98. She'd be writing in one of the writer's rooms. And at the time, Columbia had artists like her, like Alicia and Beyonce on the back burner, because there was, again, all these other artists that were older, like. Gloria Stefan and Celine Dion and Barbara Streisand and Billy Joel. So these younger artists were being like developed, and she was signed to Columbia. She had a publishing deal, and she was writing. She was she did a couple of soundtracks. Her songs made because you need placements when you get a pub deal. So they started to place her songs, and that's where I met her at Quad. And she had a studio in Harlem where she always collected gear from day one. Her songs in a minor album a lot of it was recorded in her apartment in Harlem, using DA88s and then taking that and coming to Quad and transferring what you worked on at home, and then continuing and doing you know the live stuff. And a lot of her first album was done in her apartment in Harlem, and then she always had a studio. So I started to work for her every day, a little bit more and more each year, each month. And then obviously in 2000, I really, she really started to work at Quad a lot. I think working in the apartment was prohibiting, maybe um, like you could do certain things there to start up a song and then her music evolved and her production evolved and she wanted to be in a studio and wanted to bring writers and producers in. She definitely fought for the integrity of her artistry and her vision of what her music should be. She switched three labels before Songs in A Minor came out. 2001, she had a studio in her house in Queens. She bought a house in Queens, you know, from her advances and stuff. And uh, she had a studio in her house in Queens. And then in 2003, I we started to work on the Diary album, which was her second album. She also bought a studio in Long Island because that's where her house was at the time. And we converted this little old house into a studio. Really helped me cut my teeth on acoustics and designs and taking everything i saw around the world from studios that i've been to at that point and making suggestions and working with john stork but really how to convert this little old house that looked like grandma's house into a music studio and we did it and um it was like her factory so we kind of kept evolving and growing with each other year by year and my goal to evolve as an engineer and collect gear and buy year, she had the same mentality. She was collecting keyboards and Rhodes and Whirlies and Moogs and Octagons and every keyboard you can imagine. And I was doing the same thing with guitars and pedals and drum kits and virtual plugins. We have two rigs we run side by side. One's just a big software computer with all her keyboards that load up. So um, we definitely, when it comes to that type of stuff, really the magic that we could make together and explore and the inspiration and all of that, you know, uh, is what keeps us together as we push each other to grow. We're musical partners. If we fast forward to this day, I'm involved in everything from the strategies to the rollouts to bringing certain little partnerships in to doing a piano plug in with native instruments. That's 12 years old now. We were way before. Our time with Thomas Garby and Native Instruments. It's one of the best selling uh, virtual plugins ever, called Alicia's Keys. And it was sold in a box back in the day through Guitar Center. So we definitely are very into the sonics. And our plugin is the biggest plugin used not only on stage, but in the studio. Every artist tells us, we use your plugin. We wrote this song with it. We wrote that song. So it's really nice to see, but we push each other to grow and we always said to each other, if we can't push each other to grow, then you know we both have to move on. And I think the best thing for myself is she allows me to grow. I work with Sony. I have this big studio initiative I'm doing with them worldwide um, with Rob Stringer. And it's exciting. We open five locations. They have over 40 locations worldwide and all their hubs. You know, so it's important for me as an entrepreneur to keep building all the other things I'm working on. I'm affiliated with a studio in the Bahamas. I work with I do a lot of different things and I'm able to bring that back to her and I'm able to bring partnerships and things back to her in the music field, whether it's an Amazon gig, whether it's a virtual plug-in. I'm excited for the soundwide thing that we're on the board, you know, on the board with, which is the merge of native instruments and Isotope. it's about six or seven companies together. So we love the industry, we love the craft, we love the creative, like we really have a lot of passion for, you know, making sure the community stays alive and we have our studio. I built Jungle in 2010. I didn't show her. She had her studio in Long Island. There were so many stops and starts. So I helped her evolve. And I got her, by coincidence, two of the same size condos as I put Jungle in and built Jungle in. And it was the start of Hudson Yards and the High Line. Two more condos became available and she purchased them and I moved her studio here. So it's one incredible community, which I don't think you guys saw the last time you were in when we did Tape Op. Her whole private studio is here. So I have the best of both worlds. And it's pretty cool because my... Staff is very traditional. I have general assistants, assistant engineers. They learn with the artists that come in and that with the artists that are around, they have to learn protocols and etiquette and you know proper ways of handling things. It's very traditional, so it's very hybrid in terms of being you know futuristic but also being retro in some of the ways even we manage it. You know, so that's it. Like, I moved Alicia. We keep helping each other every year and we're continuing. We're going to buy more in New York. We're going to we're, we're about to do multiple locations in L.A. We're about to see Jungle L.A., you know, like we're looking for real estate. And, you know, what I do really helps her grow and what she does helps me grow equally, not just in the studio, all the other little things that we work on together, you know. So,
0: yeah, awesome. Um, you know, one of the things that came up when I spoke with Grace was that, you know, you're, you've become involved in immersive audio. Mm-hmm. Although it's been around for a little while, it's still a, an extremely new exactly. new technology. And and um, I wanted to get your take on it. And, you know, is it the future or is it a fad? or?
1: I think, you know, it's on the fence. If I were to be honest, it can be the future. It's so new how the DSPs are partnering with the immersive partners is tricky. We have to work through a lot of glitches and a lot of things right now. We did all of our mixes in Sony 360 audio. Uh, We have a huge partnership. Alicia mixed eight albums, and we really mixed as a hybrid. We took each song and album respected the mixes but really made a hybrid of them. There's the that's one approach. There's another approach where labels are saying don't stray too far off the stereo mix. And like, why are we doing this for then? If we're not remixing things, you know? And there's the issue of the it's the artist's art. And there's DSPs that have to respect the artist's art. If you're going to change our multi-channel file when after you get the file or you know your you know you, your stereo mix has to be available your original stereo mix as well as the immersive mix artists really still mix in stereo. That's what radio is right now. That's what YouTube is. That's what Spotify is. And I'm being honest with you, I think that it's an amazing technology and it has such huge potential, especially with all the headphones. I mean, Sony headphones, the new 3D headphones and ear pods, are there like 10 billion, what is it? I forget how many billions of people really are listening to this stuff. And it's um, it's really exciting. At the same time, it's very new. It has huge, huge, huge potential, but we have to develop it and the DSPs And, you know, the immersive companies like Dolby and Sony really need to work together because if I see a Fleetwood Mac Rumors album, I I, I, and I I like let's get uh, like I want it to, you know, be better. I want them to the process how we mixed was a traditional process. And Sony allowed us that they let us remix everything it was a hybrid we took the raw files we're not only using stems you know we took the raw files we took the stems the raw files together and did whole new mixes while keeping everything you it can be done but you have to look at the business side they're just popping out these mixes and not many i don't but they have to work harder on the immersive side of things to develop the technology. It's one thing to market it, but after the marketing of it, there's a lot of marketing without like really, you know, if you talk to myself, George Massenberg and Michael Romanowski, we've been talking about this for five years, six years. Everyone now jumped on the bandwagon. Like we mixed our stuff. We were so proud of what we did. It sounded amazing and we utilized the technology. Things were panning and guitars were panned differently. And the artists are very critical. Like there was artists that are like, yo, I don't want my fans to hear. I want them to hear the stereo version. That's the version of my new song. I don't want them to hear the immersive version because it's completely different. So there's an education process that needs to happen with the artists. It's the artist's art at the end of the day. So I feel that no DSP should be able to dictate and tell us like, you know, oh, we're taking your multi-channel file and we're gonna be, you know, altering it and we're getting rid of your stereo file. You get a pop-up in your phone, like, do you wanna, you know, de- you know, you wanna delete the, you know, stereo version of this file and you know it's it's real. Yeah. So these are some of the things we're working on. And I think it's getting a lot better. I think the deliverables and we all understand what they are now. I think people realize we need a mastering engineer and it, it needs to be looked at more as, as a traditional album. And let's be real, the plugin companies, there's not a multi-channel compressor. They're not even dealing with time alignment properly. The the, the DAWs like, can we put a plugin on something? We have to do the math ourselves. We need to continue to develop it. It's amazing. And I think the reason why we chose Sony is because so many people have their headphones, because how we leave our art is how people hear it. And we're able to preview. Preview is a big thing. And one thing I love about Amazon is they gave us a preview function. We can preview our album before, you know, a beta tester, dummy name. You know, we can beta test how after they encode and and do what they do, we can go and listen to how our mixes sound, you know, and make sure how it translate. If I was a, you know, an average user, you know,
0: yeah. Stepping aside from the sort of the global big picture about immersive audio. I mean, how with the technology that's currently available, how are you approaching a mix? I mean, are you looking at it like, well, let's take the the image and then add you know, ambience around the you know the back of the listening experience
1: oh, we mix every song from scratch i mix eight albums with george uh, eric michael was mastering engineer i really was producer i went in made changes they mixed they they listened to the stereo mixes but we eq things everything eq wise was the same but we did a lot of panning we, we, we had a lot of, like, there was a song on one of Alicia's um, albums. It had a choir in it and um, How It Feels to Fly. And we played with the choir, the EQ of the choir, the blends, panned the choir more widely because we have the space and the depth to do so. It was pretty amazing. And that's the thing. I love diving into the technology of it. And I, you know, it's. But you should dive in. You, you know, nobody should be using stems, post mix stems. You know, and at the end of the day, most of the folks are listening on earphone. You know, yeah. Ear, what are the ear- the three D? You know, Sony headphones and Apple pods. So, really, you should make sure your mixes are translating. You know, um, so I think that's important too. They the sound bars have to get better. You know, and. But yeah, we mixed every song from scratch. It wasn't easy. The first since the first song was done on tape. So some of the automation on an SSL back in the day, we had to go in Pro Tools and recreate. So there's definitely like issues, right? With how do you go back and mix all those old records that the mutes were manual <laughs> like, you know, like Yeah. Right? It's, there's issues and for us I have a staff, so my guy was working, like, we imported all the stuff off tape. We had all that. But again, we evolved. So the first album was mixed on a, you know, 100-input SSL. So we didn't have post-mixed stems. It was all tape. So think about all the EQs. How do you recall that stuff these days? How do you, what do you, where is the recall notes? There's none of that, right? Like, this album was done across three labels, and I'm sure... I often wonder how the labels get around that stuff. They're just throwing these files, stems or raw files to mixers and are they listening to the original, you know, and then making it better and then using the technology. That's what we did. That's what George and Eric did and myself and Michael and The issue that I have the most is like the gain stage, right? Like not being able to print as loud as your stereo mix. That's a big thing for artists or the compression ratios are different, right? Between stereo, you know how loud things get these days and the luffs and the, you know, so I think that. We approached it, honestly, eight albums. If I ever have a day where I could play you our albums in all of our formats, you would be equally as impressed. We mixed them in all the formats. They translated in all the formats, including binaural. And, uh, you know, we started from scratch. We didn't, you know, but we listened to the stereo mix. All of our template at the top was our mastered stereo mix from our mastering engineer. So when George and Eric got the files, they got everything in the ballpark and then we worked. It was a process. I think our song, Show Me Love, we probably... Alicia went to the first three songs on the album, Alicia. She was really making sure the singles sounded amazing, if not better in the technology. And we did this Dolby pop-up, which we were excited about. They had a pop-up shop in Soho and she did a performance. So the whole pop-up shop was Alicia. And we probably mixed that song, no exaggeration, like 20 days. Wow. We went to Blackbird for six days. You know, George mixed it at his house. We came back to Dolby, but yeah, there was three songs. Her three singles was like, I got to really make sure. And it was amazing. And she did a video for it. She did three different videos and Dolby had this room and she synced all the videos together while the song played in immersive
0: that's cool so it's
1: a, it's a it's a matter of working with like company like Sony and working with them coming up with a, a great deal where you can be the face of the technology but also help the technology evolve right i think that's critical i think there you know it's important to market the stuff but also work behind the scenes and get the artist input. It's the artist's art, right?
0: So ultimately, um, I mean, the goal seems like to connect people more intimately with the music. But you know, and hopefully the songs are good.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was the thing when you listen to them. They're really, is really, they sound really amazing. And we had to listen. We mastered it. Like we mastered each song with Michael and played the transitions and we treated it like an album which i think that has to be done more you have just factories of labels just remixing this uh, art, these artists songs and it's like that's a little bit of the disconnect i'm concerned with
0: my personal preference as i've gotten older is to go backwards and like if i yeah. just want to like i if, if i do work on a song or write a song or produce a song or mix a song i just want it to sound Amazing and make me feel emotional on the worst system.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm positive about the technology. I'm uh I don't wanna come off, you know, wrong, but I feel there's so much potential at the same time, it's the Wild West. We're all developing it here. Yeah. <laughs> We're all the beta testers, right? Yeah. But I love what Sony's doing and how they're, you know, spending the money on developing their technology and making their software, you know better so yeah
0: let's talk about she is the music Mm -hmm. um which is an organization whose mission is to get more women involved in the music industry you know with like women's audio mission and 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 organizations like she is the music where people are actually feeling like encouraged and like yes i can actually do this rather than feeling like oh my god i I just don't know if that's even a place i would want to even venture into you know
1: yeah, and I think it's more open than ever. Uh, we had a, like, kind of if we rewound to 2018 with that whole co- comment of step up from, what was it, Neil now like women have to step up. We took that comment and said, you know what, that moment had to happen because it really showed that there wasn't many women in the music industry. Out of all of that, you, all those stats came out, right? So it was a wide opener for myself and Alicia to say, we've always said this, there needs to be more females in the industry. So we got Jody Gerson and Sam Kirby. Jody Gerson is the chairwoman of Universal Music Publishing Group. And Sam Kirby at the time was with William Morris Agency. Now she's with United. We all came together and said, we can do this. We're gonna get everyone on board. Everyone could be a part of it. We're gonna create pillars. Um, and those three pillars were database mentorship and songwriting camps. And then we're going to create an executive board and creator board, and then we're going to create chapters and there's going to be co-chairs per chapter. We set up our org properly. We didn't want to promote. We wanted to do the work we unveiled with billboard. They were a huge partner in helping us launch. She is the music. We unveiled it over the course of two years. We have an amazing website and database, and in it, anyone can join, whether you're a photographer, a tour in-ear monitor, front of house. We evolved it. It's geo-targeted now. You can look by state for engineers, and we get requests. And the amount of people that have hopped on board, from James Corden to Billboard to schools like NYU to songwriting camps, to Katie Couric doing a doc on us, to Mercedes and this huge partnership, to all the companies that were clothing lines from Hagen Daz to Gucci donating money to us. We've raised lots of money and we put it back not only into the industry, into these up and coming uh, creators and future next generation of our industry and we grow every year we're making sure we're growing and we're adding more workers we have an executive director who is amazing uh, michelle who handles everything we do mixers writing camps we just did uh one that's going to unveil in um on may 23rd for mercedes and the goal is to connect the dots when we started this a lot of we did a panel and a lot of women said look we need help connecting the dots. We need to network. We have the music. We're making the music. It's hard to get in the rooms. It's hard to get to the A&Rs. It's hard to get to the artists. And that's what we did. That was the real goal for She is the Music. And we created three pillars. Our mentorship program is amazing. We have Susan Dotis and Cynthia Sexton. Susan Dotis teaches at NYU. Cynthia Sexton's at Universal Music Publishing group. They created a curriculum that's so amazing for the, this mentorship program. We have mentees, mentors, right? So, and we have an application process. We set it up right with EIF as our business management. They work with all the all the charities, you know, and we keep growing. And we have a Latin uh, a Latin chapter and committee, a chapter in the UK. And everyone just comes together. We've had every sponsor from Gibson to, like I said, clothing lines to just people donating, you know, and it's been amazing. We're putting the money right back and doing writing camps, even through the pandemic. Even if we did, we did writing camp in China, you know, through the pandemic. So to, you know, it's been amazing. And I'll send you a clip of... Hoda on the Today Show did a whole uh, story on us and brought three of the the mentees, the ladies out that have been part of our um, mentorship program. So it was really amazing to see when you actually hear them speak, to really see the impact that she is the music is really having in the world, not just in the music industry, but in the community for the next generation, which is important to us.
0: Yeah, you are doing. So many different things. I'm just curious, what is it? What is your typical week look like?
1: (laughs) I fly a lot. So I'm Alicia's like right hand. And if you could imagine during the pandemic, there was a three man team we were doing. She got nominated for an Emmy. We did a performance in our little rental house in Laurel Canyon. We bring Steinways in and out and putting photos and props in the living room. But all through the pandemic, I did over 130 flights from January 2020 through now, back and forth, all of us, New York, LA, LA, New York. My typical week will start, um, I sleep from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. every day, and I'm working, I'm working and delegating, you know, and if we're on cycle for working on an album, We'll start the album stuff probably 3 or 4 p.m. But before that, we could be recording TikToks or a private show. Like, we get a lot of different... I handle a lot of different things these days within Alicia's camp, you know, recording a lot of these live live shows. I have 11 different rigs for 11 different scenarios. So some weeks I fly probably every other week to L.A. And then some weeks I'm right here in my office in New York. But every week is... Designed differently. We have team calls usually in the mornings before our sessions. We have strategy calls and then just staff calls with Alicia on Zoom. I think everyone's Zoom happy these days, right? With, um, you know, um, I have my Sony initiative, which I love. I have a staff that I work with there. We're all building this initiative out. I do that almost every day, and it's really exciting. Sony has open their offices back up the studio has opened so this particular last two weeks i was doing open houses between new york and la so all the labels came in saw the studios in new york in la i also was using the studio in la just working just breaking it in because even though we built them the facilities didn't open yet so i also the past six weeks every week myself and one of my assistants he's part of my engineer team brendan Morawski, he won a grammy we're going back and forth just tweaking the Sony rooms, you know little things that we notice along the way little we need this tweak we need this patch point moved or just little things and uh, you know it gets me really excited to just be able to work. I, I can delegate and be able to work linearly on a lot of different things at once and making sure I schedule my gym stuff in between all that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, every week, is a different, you know, it's not really structured the same, but it's more or less dealing with the same components and partners that I work with.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a uh, it's a great reminder that the um, possibly the public perception of what uh, music uh, business people do is, uh, you know, wake up late, have a coffee, put their flip flop. Yeah. You know, I mean, the reality is, is if you're doing it, you're working pretty hard.
1: Now more than ever, producers are engineering, Engineering is engineers are producing, writers are producing, writers are engineering, engineers are building their careers in, in in various ways. The technology has changed for all of us to be involved in the tech world and the industry over a lot of different components. We really overlap each other and then we're going back to where we started. I'm looking at all these labels putting studios in and the music community is building up again in new ways. And kids are getting out of their bedrooms and job opportunities are opening. And Sony has allowed that with all the locations we're opening. And it's kind of we're going back to how it started. Vinyl is the biggest physical seller. And I don't know if you look at the market share of what vinyl sold, like it's almost like a huge demand. We're kind of going back. I just want the production to go back i think a lot of people are making music like a puzzle these days they need to go back and and sort of be retro futuristic like alicia she makes the guitars play the choruses down even if there's five choruses in the song you're playing those five core those five choruses because the human element is different each time and what you play and how you hit the stroke of the guitar this copy and paste stuff has to go away it's making music to bar one, beat one. There's no more feel in, in some music. Part of what we loved on a lot of the songs in the 60s and 70s, if I could speak for myself, is that people got in a room and made magic together. The pandemic and technology has allowed us not even to meet who we're making music with sometimes. Some drum programmer is listed on your album. He's 4,000 miles away programming some drums. So I think how it's gonna kind of go back to some hybrid of where it includes where we all where it all began
0: i love it well thanks so much
1: all right thank you take care
0: thanks for listening find us online at tapebob.com facebook twitter and instagram until next time